Ladies and gentlemen, punks and non-punks alike, welcome. Episode 10 of the Human Energy Field. We're into double figures now. What do you think so far, Jamie? What do you think? We've got 10 episodes deep with the Discords up and running and kind of slowly picking up pace. We've got the Instagram. How have things been so far for you? I think we've... Um We've really come on, haven't we, a little bit, I think. And that's not to blow our own trumpets because I'm not saying what we're doing is amazing. But what I'm saying is what we're doing is already better than what we started doing. So, um, <laughs> yes. you know, anyone who's been with us since the beginning and has listened to the first few episodes <laughs> can see a difference when we kind of level up and, you know, get some new gear. Um, and that was a that was a bit. I think that was like episode four, I think you could tell from the sound mm. quality. Um, yeah. And there's obviously been a, another like episode thrown in there so yeah it's been it's been fun it i can't believe we're already at double digits i know it's honestly it's crazy and i've had some friends message me and say you guys sound like a proper podcast now which is nice because i guess we didn't at first you know we just kind of get off the ground yeah i think that's what i mean you know we can because even when we started the first one we were not shy about saying we never done it we'd never done it before (laughs) we literally just finding our feet as we did it so obviously we listened to to other people friends and and strangers who've who've done it as well so obviously we're standing on the shoulder of giants so to speak but um yeah i think i think we're we're firmly in our groove now is what i feel i like that i like that absolutely standing on the shoulders of giants as well we have to pay homage to the podcasts and the personalities that have come before us um who you never know. Without them, we might not be doing this. Uh, you, you, you can't tell, can yeah, you? Yeah, no. I mean, I agree. It, you know, the, I definitely wouldn't be as interested in doing a podcast if I hadn't been, um, you know, so inspired and entertained by a handful of podcasts that I do listen to. You know. Yeah. True. True. And you, it's like with music, isn't it? You, you, you make what you want to hear yourself. Yeah. So. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm really pleased with how things are going so far, especially the Discord. Um, it's just such a, a great feeling logging into the the Discord and seeing people talking about um, all the kinds of topics that we cover here on the show and more off the show. Um, you know, we've got in jokes forming organically, which is something I never thought I'd see. And you know, I, I, every time I log in, there's something new happening. Um, so it's it's a really great little space. And I'm uh, if you are listening to this and you're you're on the Discord, then just thank you very much for being a part of that little community there and. Uh, your input um, whether you're just talking about death metal all day or if you're actually talking about rpgs as well just thanks guys if you're on the discord just thank you very much for that yeah i've been enjoying the discord as well and i'll be honest sometimes when i you know if you you get up in the morning or you on your break from work or whatever and you and i go to check my phone i quite often go to the discord before i go to instagram now i just go straight to the discord <laughs> and see what's going on there because that that's the kind of conversations i want to be having and stuff so i'm 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 enjoying that being able to just go straight there and then um you know because i don't do facebook anyway but you know I, I do instagram but there's not that level of chat whereas the discord is that really nice isn't it that there's that extra level of interaction so yeah absolutely absolutely and we get ideas for more episodes on the discord we do. as well we do yeah so you've been uh throwing around a few little zines and stuff in our discord channel so why don't you um just kick us off with one of those what's what's something you've been reading recently that you're dying to bring and talk about because i don't really know what you've what you've got in front of you there okay so i guess the first thing that i want to um get into is i received my second printing of the first issue of the Eye of Terror fanzine. Um, people, yeah, I've, I've posted about it on the, the pod's Instagram and uh, I've mentioned it in the Discord. 
Um, anyone who wants to to have another look can go to Ayaterra Fanzine on on Instagram. I'm not sure if they're on Facebook, but um, yeah, this is the first issue of a quite tidy uh, little Warhammer centric zine. Um, there's a little bit of chat at the end where he says, "Oh, this this episode has kind of turned out very Warhammer heavy." And I was thinking, well, I should hope so. It's called Eye of Terror. Um, so I, I don't know what he was expecting, but it, it certainly is um, Warhammer heavy. So to do a bit of groundwork on it, it's basically um, there are a series of articles, a little bit of art. Uh, there's an interview with uh, the guys from the Great Rift, um, which is the chaps who talk about the Black Library novels. So that's quite an interesting little interview. Cool. I enjoyed that because I... I dip my toe into Black Library books. I am not a, a kind of fanatic of the GW written word. Um, there's just there's a lot mm-hmm. to get into there, and um, so it was nice to kind of read that interview and get a. It kind of did its job because it made me want to go and check out the Great Rift podcast. So oh, yeah, yeah, which I go. haven't done yet, but I I think this this article will will drive me to do that. Um, there's a lovely little article about the art of Ian Miller, uh, written by Dungeon Punks and Trap Nerves, Nathan Bean, um, which is, I mean, his writing style is amazing. It's like, you know, it's really good, um, yeah. really entertaining. I like the way Nate writes. Yeah, he, does, he really, um, very illustrative writing, do you know what I mean? He really, like, conjures an image, which is yeah. exactly what Ian Miller does. Um, very visceral. Yeah, yeah so the, and um, there's also a little chat about uh, more time, and there's a few pieces of fluff uh, fiction. All in all, uh, I think it was really great little first issue. I enjoyed it. Um, normally, I kind of digest a fanzine in a couple of sittings, um, but I just sat down and got cover to cover. Um, you know, I give myself the time just to enjoy it all the way through. Um, it's not. Com- it's not all ten out of ten. If I'm, if I'm going to be absolutely honest. Uh, I'm not going to point out which piece of fluff there is, but there's three. But one of them, I think, was was really below par, um, and the others the others were okay. Um, but all in all, I think for what it is and the price that it was, I think it's been put together really professionally, and I think it looks really good. Um, there are some kind of photographs in it in, in the More Time article, which are a bit hard to see because it's you know because it's printed in black and white. Which is understandable, um, but throughout the rest of the issue, the art is pretty crisp, um, pretty clear. So, yeah, all in all, good good marks for that issue. I really look forward to the second one. Um, I know he's put out like a, a shout for for people to um, put submissions in. So, I can only hope that there will be tons of material for an issue two and an issue three, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the profits go to a good cause. So, as the um, the Trussell Trust, which is a UK-based charity, ah, yes. yeah, that supports the food banks, and the Temple of Boom in Leeds, which is a place dear to both of our hearts, um, who have really struggled, as many businesses have, through this entire debacle. And uh, so all the proceeds from this have been going to those two very worthy causes. So I can give it no more praise than saying, you know, if you're at all interested in Warhammer or the Temple of Boom or just reading something cool, definitely see if you can pick up a copy of Eye of Terror. I'd like to hope they'll go for another print on issue one. Uh, and if not, then keep your eye out for issue two because, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it on the whole. I thought it was, I thought it was smashing. Yeah, well, you sold it to me already. Um, and that's, that's uh, 
even without the donations to food banks and music venues. Um, <clears throat> I really like the inclusion of Warhammer Fluff as well. I think Fluff is an or sort of fan fluff, I guess, if you, if you like. It's, it's a, an underrated part of, of the Warhammer hobby. I think it's so hard to do to, to decide what fluff and how much fluff to put in a fanzine, though. <laughs> I mean, unless it's, a, unless it's a fiction fanzine, but I know what you're saying. You know, you want to have that balance between are you just indulging someone's kind of writing for the sake of it or is it actually going to fit in with the interviews and the, the artwork and the, the features that you've got in there as well? I mean, I know I said I didn't enjoy one of the pieces, but I mean, that's not any particular slight on the person who wrote it. There are plenty of actually published Black Library novels I don't enjoy. So, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of that comes down to personal taste. Um, but one of the pieces in there was was really caught my attention, was really, really good. Um, so, yeah, it was it was interesting to see. I'm normally the kind of person who, who skips the fluff in a rule book. Um, you know, the, the kind of inevitable fluff at the start of an RPG book or something. I kind of skip past that and I'll get back to it later if, if I feel I've got time. I just want to get into the meat and gravy of it. But um, but I found this was, it It was a nice part of the overall tone of this fanzine, those those little um, those little fluff pieces. So yeah, I think they, they really worked on the whole. Great, great. That's good to know. Um, and obviously we'll be talking a bit about um, some more fluff Warhammer related projects towards the end of the episode when we cover our usual Nothos segment. So stay tuned for that, guys. Um, but that's that's really good to hear that it's a kind of it's well they've come out swinging in a way, haven't they? It's a really complete kind of kind of product for issue one. I was a little bit slow on the uptake, so I only uh, jumped on the bandwagon at this second pressing of the first issue. Um, for somehow I snoozed on the on the first printing of it. So, um, but yeah, they really have come out come out strong with it. And it, I will definitely be purchasing in issue two. Hopefully, that will come out pretty soon. Awesome, awesome. Okay. I mean, yeah, you know, I I missed this until after it sold out. But there's just so much being produced and there's so much content being made every day in all kinds of corners of the internet. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm not bound to kind of. But that's one of the reasons why we make Human Energy Field, for our listeners to find out this stuff any other way and uh, hopefully learn some new books and zines that they may have otherwise not heard of. So in that respect, you've done your job very well. Indeed. <laughs> Speaking of zines, you've got something else as well that I know. I, I want to hear you talk about this because I really like the cover artwork on it. You know what I'm going to say. I do. I, I have with me right now. It's a. It's really well produced, actually. and I, I co- It is a zine, but you know what? I think it, with all due respect, I'm going to... I'm going to give it a, its Sunday name. It's a magazine. Um, yeah, because I, I I think it's too good and too well produced to really be called a zine, if I'm honest. And what I'm talking about is the th- new third issue of Bayat Al-Azif, um, which I've now caught up on. There's with three issues so far. Um, the number three is the most recent one. I've managed to kind of fill in uh, my gaps in the collection, which was issue two. And I've been enjoying um, issue three. I had mentioned on the Discord that I thought this was essential reading for serious Call of Cthulhu fans. Mm-hmm. Do you know what? I'm going to revise that statement because I think it's selling it short to say it's only for serious Call of Cthulhu fans. I think it's just as um, intriguing and important as an illuminating for casual Call of Cthulhu fans, even for Call of Cthulhu newbies or Cthulhu newbies, as I've just come up with that word. Um, <laughs> Cthulhu. So yeah, even for. Cthulhu-newbies. Yeah, it's. do you know why? Because they are doing a really... Well, basically, I'll describe the the magazine. It's a a well-produced A4 format. Um, It's 120 pages. 
it's got scenarios, it's got reviews, um, a little bit of graphic art, uh, interviews, stuff like that. But one of the really interesting articles is it goes through a retrospective of all of the Cthulhu role-playing books that were published uh, in 2019 and some of the other issues oh, cool. that we're doing different years. And I know 2019 isn't very long ago, um, but as you say, unless there's so much going on in the internet and unless you're really got your finger on the otherworldly pulse of the Cthulhu gaming industry. <laughs> you could have easily missed a lot of these things. And I really enjoyed looking through all the titles that were released only like, you know, a year and a half, two years ago. Um, and there's definitely some stuff I haven't seen here, some stuff I was aware of and some stuff I wasn't aware of. So I think that in itself is a, in the first three issues, there's a great recap of very modern Call of Cthulhu supplements that have been released over the kind of past three or four years which I found really useful. Uh, and it's definitely nudged me to go, ah, oh, you know, I might pick up um, the odd thing or two. Uh, to admit, I'm a big fifth edition Call of Cthulhu fan. That's when I got into the game. So I spent a lot of time and money filling uh, my fifth edition collection. So I don't really have the need to pick up the new edition when it came out, the seventh edition. Uh, I'm not really into buying a lot of new supplements for Call of Cthulhu. I've kind of got a lot of stuff already. Mm -hmm. um, but this, does. This I think, is just as useful for someone like me who is playing an old version of Call of Cthulhu as to somebody who's just getting into it because there are three scenarios in this one. All of them are really well written, but the, there's a stellar um, scenario called Operation Ice Dragon, which is set in the 1960s, um, set in the kind of Cold War Cthulhu um, kind of time bracket. And okay it's, it's an excellent scenario i'm going to if i don't run it as a cthulhu scenario i'm going to adapt it to either a world of darkness scenario or just a, a generic um kind of horror scenario because it's it's just really good and and it's written by i want to give credit where credit's due um rich mckee um so i would definitely be keeping an eye out for any any other little scenarios that he writes because it was it was really excellent so i would say that it was worth the price of admission in itself just to get this uh, Operation Ice Dragon scenario. Um, and the rest of the magazine is, is it's really good. Yeah, there's a there's a little graphic novel in it. Uh, that's a graphic novel, you know, like a um, six-page graphic story. Um, I could have taken or leave that, if I'm honest. Um, uh, but that's just me. You know, if I want to read a Call of Cthulhu comic, I'll, I'll go and buy one. I don't think... As good as this might be, I think it's just a, a bit of a waste of page count, uh, if I'm honest. But with so many pages, this is a minor gripe. Um, oh, yeah. To, to kind of give up a few pages to this kind of graphic novel. There's actually a few articles which are quite short and I think could have well-deserved more page count as well. So there's a, um, there's a Mythos and the Technology article, which is really um, intriguing to me because dealing with modern uh, equipment, especially in a... In a Cthulhu Now campaign, anything, you know, internet and mobile phones is a really interesting approach for GMs to try and handle that. And even though I was entertained by the page that I read, I just thought, oh, I could have read a long article about that. So I would have loved to have heard the thoughts a little longer. Um, so yeah, I with with each copy of Buy It Allah's If I Get, I become more impressed with it. I was kind of so-so on the first issue, even though it was a high production quality. But having um, really enjoyed, you know, issue three and issue two, I just think anyone who is interested at all uh, w with Call of Cthulhu, whether you're just getting into it, whether you bought a seventh edition starter box, or whether you just like um, Lovecraft fiction and you actually haven't 
bought any um, Call of Cthulhu role-playing yet, I think picking up a copy of Byte Alasif is going to be a wonderful way to open the door into that 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 role-playing world of, of the mythos, you know. And obviously it's primarily geared towards modern Call of Cthulhu in the gumshoe system, but the way that Call of Cthulhu is with the game, all of this is, is really usable by by anybody using any any sort of system, if I'm honest. So, yeah, real thumbs up, and it gets the uh, the hef bang for your buck approval. Um, Love it. Because it. Yeah, it's not, don't get me wrong, it isn't cheap, and that's why I hesitate to call it a zine. Um, I think I paid, I can't remember, I paid 15 quid or whatever it was for, for this one. Oof. Yeah, but... That's magazine it, price, isn't it, that? It is, um, but as I've just said, it also feels like a gaming supplement because it's got three really good scenarios in it as well as some other stuff. So, and the, you see where the production, you see where the money's gone in the production quality because it is, it's, it's well bound. It's, you know, it's well produced. The cover is a kind of heavy card stock with a, I don't know, I don't know enough about printing to know what it is, but it, you know, when it feels nice under the, to touch, oh, you yeah. know, kind of like a, like a smooth, like a velvety feel on the cover. So yeah. Um, I did not feel robbed about the the money that I'd spent on Bayat Alazif. I thought it was I thought it was really good. That that's my hot pick, I think, for you know, for now. Amazing. Okay, yeah, it's it looks really pretty from what I've seen. Um, the cover looks really nice, and I'm actually surprised to hear first of all that it's A4, um, but also that it cost you fifteen pounds. I mean, I I wouldn't release a product and call it a zine if I was charging fifteen pounds for it. It would be something different. It would just be a little a book or a magazine or something. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's called a magazine, but you get these these bookazines, don't you? You know mm. that uh, that can be expensive. Um, so yeah, like I guess it just it it, it is what it is. So it, it isn't cheap, but yeah, I paid I paid thirteen pound fifty for it. Um, right. So I mean, I that's cheap for a role playing supplement, in my opinion, um, and I think this qualifies as both magazine and role playing supplement. So. You know, if you think about it, it's three or four quid for each scenario and then some extras. Yeah, okay. So to bring it into the RPG itself firm for a bit, I definitely fit into that latter category of people that you mentioned earlier who have not played much, if any, Call of Cthulhu. I don't own any Call of Cthulhu books on my shelf. Um, I've got a big uh, Necronomicon Lovecraft completed works down here, you know, the big black leather-bound one. Yes, I've got, I've got that. I love that one. Um, but in terms of the RPG side of the Lovecraft mythos, it's not something that I've really explored too much. I'm aware that there's Call of Cthulhu. I'm also aware that there's another game called Trail of Cthulhu. Now, when you were talking about 7th edition, is that what you meant, or is these two completely different product lines? No, so Call of Cthulhu 7th edition is just the most recent incarnation of a game that began all the way back in the very early 80s, um, and it was originally published under license of Games Workshop and then um, Chaosium. So it's just in its seventh incarnation and the rules haven't really changed much over the editions. They're still pretty much backwards compatible. Um, I think the new seventh edition it is the one that has developed the mechanics the furthest. So it really feels like a brand new edition. I don't have massive experience with it because as I said before, I'm really rooted in fifth edition, so I had no mm. need to buy the new one. Um, but it looks pretty. Um, you know, it's a hardback. It's quite expensive, but I mean, RPG core books can be now. So, um, but Trail of Cthulhu is a different game, which is also inspired by H.P. Um, Lovecraft, but uses Robin D. Law's Gumshoe system, 
which was kind of developed through some of the other products like ESO Terrorists and Fear Itself and kind of developed through those small, they're not quite indie games, but those kind of small games that were coming out by Robin D. Laws, um, you know, kind of 15 years ago and it's developed into a, a full investigative system that is really um, well designed for supporting the kind of game that Call of Cthulhu is intended to be where you are investigators you go around you look for clues the clue will lead you to another location where you will pick up clues and, and solve the mystery um, and part of the problem that was leveled at the original Call of Cthulhu was that if the player characters missed a clue or failed to succeed their library role or whatever it happened to be then the game was a little bit stuck because the GM would have to be, you know, come up with something clever as to why the, the PCs can then continue to succeed. Um, Robin D. Laws looked at this and, and decided to build the entire mechanics around allowing the investigators to succeed at getting these clues in an, in an interesting way and moving the game forward. So it's a totally different gaming system. Um, it's two different ways to play Call of Cthulhu. I would say... The original Call of Cthulhu is what I'd call the trad version. And this kind of gumshoe has maybe the the kind of new, more narrative version, if you really had to pigeonhole them. Um, but they're, they're providing the same kind of feel, the, the, the same kind of game, but with a, a different mechanical approach. Right, right. Do you have a preference? What do you think of Trail and the gumshoe system in itself? Because I've seen this come up. I've got Easter Terrorists. I also have Knight's Black Agents, which discusses gumshoe system to a certain extent. Um, it is, yeah. And those two books in themselves made me think, hmm, what's this gumshoe system? You know, if, if these books were about things that I'm interested in and talking about this uh, this game engine, then it's something that I want to look into a little bit more. What do you think about gumshoe? Um, okay, so this is this is going to sound like a um, a two a two part answer because I think it's really valuable for what it does, but it's basically a cheat sheet for Call of Cthulhu. It right. allows game masters to overcome a problem which is understandably there in Call of Cthulhu, but a good GM and a good group would have been able to work around that anyway. You know, yeah. I've been playing Call of Cthulhu for thirty years, and it, you know uh, you learn to live with it. You learn to to kind of learn how to handle the system. I think the Call of Cthulhu system lasted the way it was for so long because it did work. Um, I think having a fresh approach to make the game easier to run isn't a bad thing for new players. So I can totally see the appeal of Trail of Cthulhu for a group who didn't start many years ago with Call of Cthulhu. So I think for new players, Trail is, is much more forgiving. Um, and I think the new version of Call of Cthulhu, 7th edition, borrows a lot of ideas in terms of its um, flavor and tone from Trail of Cthulhu, um, if I'm honest. But I think it's just it's yeah it's a shortcut, basically is what it is, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we don't want to struggle when we're running or playing our games. So if if you're just getting into it and you want to be supported by the mechanics and the system rather than kind of struggle, then Trail of Cthulhu is is going to be friendly to you. But um, I've never felt the need to use it rather than just stick to Call of Cthulhu. But then again, the, the voice of experience that I can deal with PCs who have missed a clue, I can, you know, hide that clue somewhere else and make it look like it was always somewhere else, you know. I'm kind of used to that and that's okay, but not a lot of new GMs can do that on the fly. Um, so I can totally understand why they would find Trail of Cthulhu more fun, if that, you know, if I can put it like that in brackets. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a, almost a question of technique, isn't it? I, I suppose from the element of the from the side of the GM, from what you're saying. Um, but you know, I understand the need for systems that are forgiving when it comes to um, character failure. You know, like th- there's the classic situation of if you, if you can't get through the door, the whole adventure comes to a grinding halt because one one dice roll was missed and that kind of thing. You know, I'm I know we're kind of moving past that. Uh, mindset now and that uh, even game engines are having baked in rules such as this gumshoe thing that that mean that that doesn't happen anymore um and you know that's definitely one way to solve the situation and to make sure that your games don't come to a stop because one player rolled a one on one one roll but at the same time like you're saying if your technique is correct or you have a versatile toolkit as a gm you are able to overcome those boundaries at the table instead of in the rule book, and I think those are it's probably two different approaches to the same problem, really, isn't it? So one's not not inherently better than the other, but certainly one requires the experience and the foresight and having made those mistakes in the past to uh, overcome. Whereas the other one just says, "Oh, don't worry about it." Same thing as failing forward. Just make sure that you're always doing X and Y, and you can't go wrong. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent, absolutely. Um, I think what it does make me um, wonder about when you were saying that, though, was I do worry about the ever-increasing trend of avoiding failure in RPGs. (laughs) It's almost like we're getting into a situation where players feel they need to succeed and they need to move forward and they need to, they don't want to struggle. Um, And and I think that's a, to me, is personally is a, a bad trend to get into. You know, my PC will never fail. My PC should always succeed and I should always win and I don't want my character to die. Is like, it is the attitude of a lot of gamers that I listen to now and I'm just thinking, what? Like, sh- what's the point in rolling a dice if you only ever want to succeed? And being upset that you didn't and, and then blaming the GM because you're not having fun because you haven't succeeded with something or your character's dead or whatever that happens, whatever the failure is and... Yeah, I just think this this failing forward idea is it's fine, but I, there's a danger of taking it too far. Yeah, I see that. I mean, you know, no one wants their player character to be uh, a doofus and miss every attack and get wounded all the time. You know, you want your well, it depends what kind of game you're running, I suppose. But as a, as a whole, talking in general terms, you want your player character to be capable probably in ways that you are not, which is, I imagine is why you're role-playing in the first place. Um, and you want them to have abilities and, and skills to pull off certain things. And if they walk into a room and they don't see a locked cabinet or whatever, then it, it makes the character feel kind of incompetent, which by extension makes you feel like a bad role-player to a certain extent. I mean, I know I've, I've had that situation in the past and you just think, oh, fuck me. Like, if my if my stats were better, I wouldn't be feeling so personally bad right now about the fact that I can't progress this story forward. So there is a kind of extension of that, you know. I think people's um, own people's own opinions come to the table more than I think we would like a lot of the time and people take things personally. You know, I know because I felt that same thing, so... Maybe it's an extension of that, perhaps. Maybe it's some. Maybe it's a failsafe for players who are taking their characters' failures personally. Yeah, I just I worry that we're we're moving into a situation where the normal, the done thing to do at the table as a GM is to kind of baby baby your players. Yeah. To kind of always let them win. Yeah. Uh, never kill them. Um, 
don't i mean i read an article i don't i don't know where it was i'll i'll find the link and i'll put it in the discord but um i read an article about rpgs that don't have combat in because people are having issues with combat so <laughs> yeah and i just thought mm, that i mean that's okay not every not every session i run i've run many many sessions of lots of games that haven't had a combat scene in them so i'm not, I'm not against that but actively setting up the game so that you don't have combat in it, I think is is another step in this this bizarre for me direction of, of well, I, I I don't want confrontation in my game. I'm not comfortable with confrontation, so you as the GM have to make sure that I don't have to be hit by anybody or hit anyone else with a weapon. I don't want to, I don't want that to happen, and I don't want any I don't want it to happen to any of my group either. So it's not just saying that I'm going to be the wizard who stands at the back in combat and doesn't fight and just does my spells. It's, I don't want this game to feature combat. So when a combat scenario comes up, you know, we start getting into X card material or, you know, lines and veils of like, yeah. well, I, I, don't, I don't want to see combat. And that, that to me is odd. I find that unusual. I mean, it's certainly in the minority. Um, I would direct that person towards a book called Story by Robert McKee, which I'm sure you've read, which basically, as we all know, storytellers teaches us that conflict is the essence of drama and it doesn't have to be combative or violent, but in a lot of RPGs, that's often the case. We exacerbate situations and we romanticize things and we blow them up at the, t at the gaming table and we make them larger than life. And I think that's part of the fun. Um, as much as I would love to run an understated game where it's entirely um, as realistic as possible and people are just talking and there's no there's no action going on, I think there's there's scope for that to be interesting too. But as a general rule, I think if you're um taking combat out of your rpgs i think you're missing the trick because some of the best moments i've had at the gaming table both running and playing games have been combat related um and some really unforgettable moments that i won't bore everyone with at the moment but i think i think combat's a really big inherently big part of, of a lot of rpgs let, let me paint you a picture so the world is returning to normal and um you are GMing at some form of tournament or con, right? Okay. And you're GMing Dungeons and Dragons, fifth edition. And there's an X card on the table because that's the done thing at tournaments or cons or whatever. Yep. So let's just, just, just let's just assume there's one there. Yeah. People waiting for an X card debate won't get it this episode. We're gonna gloss nope. over that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, see previous episode about that. Yeah. But it, it's there. So and you are building up there. They start in the village. Um, they move out into the, the road, out into the wilderness. And you've set up an ambush. And some bandits leap out in front of your PCs. One of them draws a knife. And one of your characters, uh, sorry, one of your players leans forward and lightly touches the X card. What do you do? Uh, I'd be shocked at that point, I think. But you also have to, and I'm putting half in capitals, you have to move, you have to just stop that moment and move on right you do this is a really good question because you want to you want to see how it plays out don't you yeah but then so you stop it maybe you know there's a knife trigger that's okay you know everybody's different mm. you just you 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 abide by the rules of the x card there's no discussion you just you describe what happens and you move on you are the next bit you get to a haunted house or whatever um the twisted old man who lives in the the attic runs down the stairs at the player characters with an axe in his hand 
one of the characters, one of the players, sorry, maybe the same player, maybe a different one, lightly touches the X card. <laughs> what do you do? I abide by the rules of the X card, describe the scene and move on. Yeah. So th- this is a situation we're moving into, I think, is, is what I'm seeing. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating for, for dramatic effect, but uh, th- this is not out of the realms of, of happening, is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I definitely, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, in the case of the bandit ambush, you 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 don't know what's going to happen until the combat's resolved. You know, did the players make the roll to vanquish the opponents, or were they overcome? So having to skip all of that, all of those kind of decisions, if you like, it's having it. It begins to have a negative effect on the story. That's where my mind's going. Is I've got my GM's hat on. That's that's now having an adverse effect on the story I'm trying to tell. The fact that you're taking these scenes out, players are losing the ability to make decisions. We're losing dice rolls from the table. I'm 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 probably now at this point worried for the, the sake of the game. Yeah, because as you're quite right, you don't know how that how that ambush is going to turn out. The players could, with some quick charisma rolls or some intimidation or a bluff manage to talk their way out of it, buy their way out of it, do whatever. But somebody touching the X card, unfortunately, due to the system that we've all agreed upon is the is the, the best way to do things, um, it, somebody has decided to use that option, which has been presented to them. You as a GM are under all obligation to then just tie up that scene and move forward. And you're absolutely right. I mean, how many times does that have to happen before you go, I'm not sure if I can run the adventure I'm meant to be running if every time somebody pulls a weapon on the characters that there is an X card touched. At what point does that become the player's problem and not the GM's? Or does it never? I mean, and you might have a player sitting next to them who's looking at their level two spells going, oh, I can't, waste, can't wait to cast Chromatic Orb or whatever. You, you know, he wants to get into it and um, he's prevented from, or she's prevented from uh, having the game that they want to play because of, you know, I mean, there's all, all kinds of ways that it could go down, but I think skipping over scenes whether they're i mean it's not about the violence in the combat it's not really what i'm talking about i'm talking about scenes there scenes where the outcome is undetermined until you play it through and that is true of most combat but also of other things but the fact that that would be glossed over because of the combat within that scene means that as a as a crux as a bottleneck of the of the story you're kind of losing progress you're losing track of where it could go next you know, there are no dice being cast there's no wounds they probably got robbed you know who knows what happened you have to just make it up and move on wouldn't you well well the bandits come and you got robbed and they took your coins and they left and now we're on the next scene yeah and i just think it it's all well and good to kind of prep players coming up to a table about whether a game might be have adult themes or be a bit dark or do whatever but i don't think it's necessary for a gm to warn D players that there might be some combat. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't. I would feel a bit like, well, kind of obviously. Yeah, I hope so. But then yeah. is this? Yeah, but then is that? Is that? Is that my fault now for assuming that there should be um, violent conflict in this game when I don't know if my players are comfortable with violent conflict? Another good point. Maybe you should just be safe and announce it. But then, then we get into at every con. Do we eventually just have to run games that can have confrontation, but? in terms of, um, you know, unknown results used through the dice rolls and the mechanics. But it cannot be, there can't be any what I would call violent combat or confrontation in, in that physical sense. So you just have to, you could do traps and, and other stuff, but you just can't put combat in your, your games anymore. Wow. 
part of my brain saying that would be a really fun DM challenge to try and achieve that. But the if, for the sake of the conversation, in, in, in a general sense, that is uh, probably not the way I would like things to go down. It's not it, that's worrying to me. It's not something that I'd like to do. But as a one-off, that would be wouldn't it be interesting to try and try and do a whole uh, specifically D and D game without combat and see how it goes? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are. It, you can go back decades where people will discuss these kind of games. So I remember the yeah. old um, character class handbooks for AD&D, for instance, for second edition. There was like a fighter's handbook, the wizard's handbook or whatever. And there was always a really interesting um, piece in every book saying, what about an all-wizard campaign? Yeah. And that would have loads of cool suggestions about, you know, because you can't put four wizards, four level one wizards into a fight. They'll die. They'll, they, they can't fight goblins. You know, they've all got no armor and you know, 1d4 hit points. And so there's some. There's always been ways of kind of playing those kind of games. But on the whole, I th- I'm worrying that... I read this in an article, a published article online. So this is not me worrying about a worst-case scenario. This is me kind of reading the writing on the wall and going, is this the direction we're headed in? Yeah. And And I do worry about that because... It would certainly make me think twice about running it at a, at a as a GM in a big tournament or a convention or whatever, because you have to just be as safe as you can be right now. Because it, it, we've all read stories about how this can go really wrong. Yeah, and there's a point when safety overrides fun, isn't it? There is that. There is that point when it, get, it, it gets to a stage where you know, you can you can have both, but um, being too safe stops things from. I mean, ultimately, it's a game. We're just playing games. It's not. It's not world-ending. But then, whatever you mention in a game, it's just a game to you. But to somebody else, it's more important, and that's why the X card exists. Also true. Also true. So even though a little bit of combat with some goblins or some dwarves or whatever might not mean anything to you, the person might have a fear of goblins and in real life, and I, and we can laugh at that. But then, would I then be demonized for laughing at some poor player? who touch the X card at goblins every time I put goblins in the scenario, it's not for me to laugh at him for being afraid of goblins, right? That's his right. That's his... I have to protect him as a player and a person for his decision to be uncomfortable with whatever he wants to be uncomfortable with, right? I, I agree with that. Very noble, yeah. Well, I mean, that is, that's the kind of default setting, isn't it? I can't... If I decide I'm going to make some horrible comment about this player touching the X card every time I put goblins in, then... That I'm I'm gonna get I'm gonna get some flack for that you know yeah why have you put the X card down if you're gonna give the player flack for touch, for using it you know you put it there yeah. so that it can be used without you without your input it's there for the players to be to use as they see fit yeah, yeah. exactly so my my whole point is to get to the end of this this thought experiment is if the minute you put the X card down the players are then free to touch it for anything even the things you might not think they're gonna touch it for yes. Yeah, so I suppose the lines and veils beforehand would be a more efficient way of agreeing on that, perhaps. We're now, now we're getting into it now, aren't we? Yeah, because, I mean, if you sit down and, and, and my players say to me, you know, we're having a session zero and we're talking about things, which I think, by the way, is really valuable. Anyone, I think it's... I, I've been talking about doing, and I'm sure a lot of older gamers have been talking about doing session zeros for years and years and years and years. Mm. Um, but now it's become like a real thing. It's become a, a thing that mainstream games talk about doing. Um, and, and I think anyone who isn't doing session zeros should really do them. It's really valuable. Uh, everyone will know, but basically it's the first session where you get together with your players to spend that entire session talking about the kind of game you want to do, building your characters together, all of that kind of stuff. 
so that everybody is on the same page when you start your session one. Um, and I think if I'd sat down and some players were like, I'm really uncomfortable with combat, I'd be like, okay, right, that's cool, but what do you mean by combat? And if they were like, well, any kind of combat, I'd be like, oh, okay, the game that I have in mind will potentially have some combat in, so I don't want to exclude you from this game, but maybe maybe you should join another game I'm running or or something else, or you know, I can help you find a game that doesn't have any combat in because I don't really want to take combat out of my game. Mm-hmm. But then am I wrong for doing that? Am I then excluding that player? This is a very complicated question. I think as a GM, you have a you have a certain amount of right and license to the story that you're telling. Specifically, if it's your baby, if you've got something that you really want to do, and let's say it features combat, I think it's I think you have a right to the game, especially if it hasn't started yet. You know, the, I think the, the, the dynamic is a little bit different if the players have not yet made characters. But on the whole, I think the GM has a certain kind of, you know, the GM's there to have fun too. But as the storyteller, you, you have a vision. You're, you're In a way, you're the director of the, of the movie, aren't you? You know, and it's, it's, in, in, to a certain extent, it's your vision that is, that is being played out. You've got a, a way you want to take it. You've got things you want to include, etc. So Where do you draw the line with that? Because your vision for this game or session might be a pregnant nun is the bad guy and if somebody has an issue with that i mean that might not be discussed at the beginning but it's well within somebody's rights to be upset about that um and that they're taking your vision away at what point can your vision be compromised or should it be compromised Uh, at what point does your vision remain kind of um sacrosanct to the player's wishes well first of all if you ever run a game including a pregnant nun please keep me in mind i'd like to play in that Again, you mean again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you ever run another game, yeah. Um, I've, I mean, it depends on the on the game and the group. So I think that's that gets into um, semantics at that point. I think there's no one line that you could make a rule of for every game because it does depend on the player group and the and the GM specifically. So I would, that would be a case by case basis for me. Yeah, I I think you know um, we're obviously getting to the the kind of end of this, but it's. You're right, it's so tough to find an answer to that because it would make me um, really disappointed if I went to a, a tournament run D&D and every combat that I put in was, was stopped by the X card. And I don't know if I should be feeling disappointed, but I think if I'm honest, I, that would disappoint me. Yeah, no, that would suck, man. I'll, I'll say it straight. Yeah. That would be awful. I'd hate that. You know, you're just, you're just looking forward to getting to a scene to play out, to have some action going. Yeah. Everyone likes a bit but of then, action. And then, but uh, then does that make us assholes? I don't know, man. I don't know. I mean... I get it. It depends who you ask, doesn't it? Because if, some people might say that merely the fact that we say a bad word about the X card at all make, would make us assholes, whereas some people would agree with, with the points that we're making. So... Again, case-by-case case basis, isn't it? There's, there's so many different niches and communities out there now, and they've all got their own ways of doing things. Um, and I've got no problem with any of them, but this is us and this is ours, I suppose, right? I mean, Yeah, 100%, and I, and I, I totally support and agree with that. But, you know, I, I learned a long time, and I had to learn this, that whatever a group is doing around the table, if as long as they're having fun, they're doing it right. That's it, exactly. And I've been guilty in the past of going, oh, you're not playing it properly, you know, mm-hmm. like stop getting Bond wrong, like, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but it, 
as long as they're having fun, let them crack on. And and I I realised that you know a long time ago, thankfully, but I had to come to that realisation. Um, so I'm I'm well, you know, respecting other people's way to play a certain game any way they want. But as the world reopens, we will get back into cons, we will get back into tournaments, we will get back into gaming groups, you know, um, gaming stores that have gaming space where you will meet new players. These are all of the hurdles and pitfalls that GMs will now have to learn to maneuver in what I will call the new environment of tabletop gaming, which is very different to your daddy's environment of tabletop gaming. <laughs> it's true. It's a new world. It's a modern world. It's a modern society. It is. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm not entirely certain it's for me. I don't, I, I'm not sure how comfortable I would be sitting down at a local gaming store and running an RPG session for... Um, people I don't know anymore. And if I did, I would have to make sure that that was the, the softest, most inoffensive, happy-go-lucky, Saturday morning cartoon feel game ever. So, and I can do that, that's fine, but that would be the only way I could do that. Yeah, just playing it safe for safety's sake. Super safe, super yeah. safe. Yeah, you're right. Man, that's that's uh, that's hit really hit me deep deep in the heart that has you that you wouldn't feel as comfortable playing for strangers as you maybe you would have done a few decades ago that's uh that's pretty deep if you have thoughts on this please come and join us in the discord and tell us why we're right or how we're wrong and what are your personal experiences maybe you know have you been at a table where these things have happened have you been that person on the other side i think you know if you've listened this far we're not necessarily saying what's right or wrong we're just kind of throwing the question up there um, you know, there's a lot of different opinions. So if, if I, I really want to hear other people's opinions. And I believe you can email us as well if you want to um, have any long email comments at uh, Human Energy Field Podcast at, at gmail.com. Gmail That's correct. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to get in touch with the show that way, then, you know, please do email us. Um, you know, if you want to write a strongly worded letter um, about my ill-considered um, thoughts on the X card, <laughs> then please do so. I won't read it, but no, I will. Um, yeah, of course I would. Yeah, our inbox isn't full enough for me to ignore it, so I would definitely read it. Um, no, I would, I would, of course, jokes aside, read it and consider it because I, I do want to know other people's opinions is, is what I'm saying. Yeah, uh, the in a way, the Discord is like the extras for the podcast and we have conversations there that we don't have when we're on air, so... I mean, the real uncut version is come and sit in the pub with us and then we'll have a proper chat and, you know, and there's yeah. no microphones around. But the Discord has its own um, kind of style and we both me and you like to have uh, input on there, which is probably uh, a bit more in-depth than we would where we dare to go on a regular episode of Human Energy Field, the podcast. So if, you, if you're into this kind of conversation and you want to get stuck into these kind of abstract concepts of safety and combatless gaming and that kind of thing then do join the discord i'll put the link in whatever show notes so wherever you're listening to this uh you should be able to find the discord or send us an email and i'll send you a link right back human energy field podcast at gmail.com i can't believe the time i'm looking at how long this episode has been going already and i'm in a rush to hear about the next book that you've got on the agenda this is really what i want to this is this is what i've been waiting for I've been really excited to talk about this book. Um, anyone who's listened to, to these episodes um, will have picked up that I've been enjoying the um, Osprey games, role-playing games that have been coming out. Um, I believe at the time of, of recording this, we're, we're up to about five different games that they have in their selection. And 
this episode, I really want to talk about Righteous Blood and Ruthless Blades by Brendan Davis and Jeremy Bai. I apologize if I pronounced that name wrong, but um, I don't know. Um, it's a similar format to a lot of the other Osprey RPGs that have come out. So you're looking at a kind of 270-page um, A5 hardback glossy pages, beautiful production quality, um, full-color pages, and this one is basically all about. Now you're gonna have to you have to teach me how to pronounce this. Is it Wuja? Wuju? Wuja. Wuja. Wuja role playing. It's one of those words that I've read a lot and never said out loud, mm -hmm. which is a lot. Of, you know, a lot of words. Um, so yeah, Wuja role playing. It's inspired by um, mostly the cinema. When you read through, you can get the the writers have been inspired by classic cinema from the 60s, 70s, and onwards, but also by um, Wuja literature. Um, this book, I thought Jackals was the best one. This has surpassed um, the... Yeah, it has. Now, I that is not to knock Jackals because I love Jackals. For, for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, that's the Bronze Age kind of fantasy role-playing game um, that Osprey released that I talked about, I think, last episode or the episode before. Um, but this, it tops it in terms of um, writing style, uh, gaming mechanics, um, resources... Um, everything in here is almost entirely flawless. And, and I don't say that about a game very often. I've never heard you use that word. Well, there you go. Um, I'm a newcomer to the genre, as you may have guessed there. Without, I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> um, so I'm not, I'm not immersed in that Wuja background. You know, I don't, I don't know all the, the different movies and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I, I've, I've watched some, you know, Kung Fu movies and I, you know, I've read some martial arts stuff and, you know, like like a lot of people have, but this presents a very, it's almost like an Old West style, is, is the best way I can put it, with like lone swordsmen and kind of um, crime bosses, and it, it's basically set in a, in a kind of medieval um, China uh, underworld, so imagine, you know, gangsters and, and thieves and, you know, um, princesses and, and, you know, renegade swordsmen and all that kind of stuff. Um and it's really, really heavy on style. Um, as I've said, you can really get the love of the, the genre that the writers have. And they've managed to perfectly place that genre into a system and, and, and a world um, for you to represent in your, you know, in your tabletop session. Um, everything from the beginning of how you build your characters is built around it, it feeling and looking good. You know, that. Your characters are all about their signature moves and their weapons that they use. Oh. Um, yeah, about their, their martial arts style. Um, for instance, everyone has like a killing aura, which is one of the things I love about it. And you can kind of sense other people's levels and killing auras when you kind of, you know that moment when two swordsmen are standing in the street and kind of eyeing each other out and hands begin to edge towards the hilt of their swords and they the, the battle might already be won or lost before anyone's even drawn a sword because someone's kind of you know kind of out thought somebody um just all of that amazing stuff um in th this killing aura is like what level you are but also how many people like you've you've murdered and you, um or killed and you know not necessarily murdered but you killed with your weapons or your swords or your martial arts techniques so that you can get these bad guys who have like, you know, killing auras of dozens or whatever. And you, the GM can actually give the player a rough idea of what aura they've, that they, these NPCs have got. So you can get an idea of how badass they are. And um, 
there's they're not afraid to like you know throw up these massive big crime bosses up against your players and they should know fine well that you know this guy's got a, an aura of death around him which is you know like hundreds of people That's fields cool. of dead people around him yeah it's very cool um but you can also progress through that as with your character um and there's, there's rules for drinking and how you can get worse by drinking but also get better sometimes by having too much you know rice wine um so there's some really cool stuff in there there's some great um, kind of, I'm going to call them magic items because that it, that's what they are in a traditional RPG sense. But they feel more like aiding the artifacts. So each one has like a name and a background, and you know there's there's a handful of them in the book, um, which you can definitely use as inspiration. There's a handful of NPCs, quite a lot for you to litter your your campaigns with. Um, a whole host of fighting styles and, and weapons. Is, I mean, you cannot fail to be inspired by the writing and the the character options in this book when you when you read through it amazing amazing i'm i'm so uh, excited to get myself a copy of this now because i i'm really into all this stuff um the killing aura idea sounds really good it, it kind of takes that uh narrative idea of, of people facing off against each other on a wind swept street and it makes it mechanical which i really like you know with one number you can kind of sum up that whole pre-fight fight um so that that's really great yeah it's great it's all that kind of it's basically the analysis phase of combat where you kind of it, Almost it can be finished before that. Before that, you even get into drawing swords uh, when you know who's going to win or who's not. Um, but the, the, the core mechanics in themselves are really easy. So it's a bunch of D10 against the target number and you kind of pick the highest. Um, so obviously, if you've got more D10, the, the chance of hitting that target number. Um, but you only have to hit it with one dice. Um, it is really good. And then obviously difficult, you can reduce the number of dice or roll multiple dice and pick the lowest. It's a very clever, very simple D10 system. Um, the mechanics can be uh, learned and taught in about two minutes. It's all of the ways that the weapons and the styles alter those basic mechanics, which make the game really interesting. It's very. It allows you to scale the heroicness of it to to your taste. So you can play it very deadly, where once you hit with a sword, once you kind of out, or you could play it with a very kind of. Um, a much more heroic style where you can get hit quite a few times before you're out, which makes for, you know, a bit more of a, a kind of exciting kind of heroic way of doing it. But the the game allows you and encourages you to, to do whatever suits your group. But I think as the default, it, it's quite deadly. So once combat breaks out, I'm going to paraphrase you, you know, combat can often be um, very violent and very short and it's over very quickly. And that is really what this book kind of gets across. Oh, I love it. That's how I like my combat every time. I don't like long, drawn-out um, kind of waffling. I like I like combat to be fast and unfair and dangerous and bloody and, and dare I say, righteous. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's all sorts of that in this, and, and I think it really captures <laughs> the feel of this, um, this kind of underworld which you are playing in, um, which you are kind of manoeuvring in. I, I think it, it just captures it amazingly well it's not a genre of role-playing that i've done a huge amount of uh, i'm familiar with some old games weapons of the gods which is a, a hong kong comic book um inspired role-playing game by um eos press which is you know um quite old and some of that maybe exalted i think falls under this banner kind of it's the kind of white wolf wuja hybrid cool i think um I, I people might disagree with that but i think exalted which obviously it was around for a long time. It's got that kind of that kind of wuja feel with all of the signature styles and stuff like that. But I mean, this this drags it back to its it, 
it's what I would call real world. Um, but I only use that because there's no like Oni in here or like Kappas or Dragons or things like that. It's all, it's kind of humanocentric. You know, it's all about, it's meant to be played kind of mythological maybe is a better word than historical because, you know, you can still do these amazing things that you see in, in some of these old Kung Fu movies, you know, like leaping over buildings and, you know, freezing people's swords with your, manipulating your chi and all that kind of stuff. That's really cool. That's really cool. I want to um, manipulate someone's chi with my fingertips and uh, either heal or damage them by like doing some five finger technique on their ribcage. Yeah, well, Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades allows you to do that. And encourages amazing. you to do that, actually. Oh, oh, amazing. Amazing. I am a big fan of Wuja. I've got a, a, quite a pressing question about this book. Right. The vibe that I'm getting already is that it does a pretty good job of bringing into life the formula of Wuja, the kind of genre staples. Um, you've got Honor, Warriors kind of lonesome roads maybe a bit, an element of magic or mythical gods or beasts um powerful legendary swords you know that kind of thing in a lot of ways it has parallels with western fantasy um you know this is probably uh, china's own development of a kind of fantastical fiction fantastical genre wuja has a lot of romance in it and a lot of love does the book mention romance very often because without a love story it's not wuja if you ask me i think it really does a good job of introducing those concepts as maybe part of your character build or maybe part of your background maybe your motivations um it doesn't really focus on that as is in play activities if, if that makes sense okay. um it's got much more of a combat focus but that doesn't mean that you can't take your game of, of righteous blood in that direction because the um the mechanics, even though they're simple, they're robust enough to work for, you know, kind of flirting and, and you know, all that kind of stuff rather than just fighting. Um, but I think it's unashamedly a game that the focus is on those amazing set piece fight scenes in, in, in a cool environment with, you know, talented opposition. Do you know what I mean? I think that's that's kind of what it's crying out for. Right, right. You won't be running it at a con anytime soon, then. No, I mean, unfortunately, I've got a, got a list as long as my arm of of, um, of games that I want to run. But <laughs> I think what, if anything, this has made me want to go and learn a little bit more about the genre. Watch, there's a great kind of filmography in here and bibliography. Um, some great resources that the writers tell you you can go and watch um, and what you'll get out of them and wh where their influence has been. So, if anything, I think what I'm probably going to do is quietly go away and watch a lot of not a lot but definitely more wuja than i have previously and i think that might inspire me to run a game based on whatever film i find really entertaining you know yeah absolutely i recommend that um people stick around in a little bit because we're going to be reviewing a very famous wuja film shortly um the uh the books and the novels that kind of brought wuja to life um are very hard to get hold of a lot of the time and it's hard you know i've i've many times said to someone can you recommend me some good wuja fiction to read and there's 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 never the same uh answer from people so it's it's almost like there's it's a very broad genre and i've i've yet to hear about specific genre staples um other than one that i'm going to mention shortly but in in terms of uh the more kind of general uh, fiction of Wuja, it's very broad and it's very 
um, diverse. So I suppose we'll have to get reading and we'll have to find out exactly which books are good and which ones are worth our time, you know? Well, I certainly got the feeling from reading this book um, that there's a lot more to be experienced on the screen than there is on the page. Um, So there was a lot more films listed than there were books. So maybe, I don't know if that's indicative of what's available in in english or you know west or translation maybe it's a translation thing because it's a lot easier to watch a movie in another language than it is to read a book in another language so maybe that's part of why there isn't um a, a great amount of wuja literature um kind of floating about in english um, there, there are mentions here of you know you can get translations online of certain books and everything which i think is great for people who are really into it um i don't want to really read a book online so you know if i can if i can find a, a a paperback or hardback kind of classic wuja fiction then definitely but i think i'll definitely spare a few hours now and then to watch some of what the writers claim as being some of their major influences film wise because they've written a book that inspires me to want to play that game so i can only assume that i would enjoy the films that have inspired them to make the game yeah definitely do they mention these films in the book have they do you know what? Yeah, well, it, there's a there's a, a great um, section about uh, the influences that that have been given. Oh, amazing! Yeah, just read some of those out for us, just in case anyone listening wants to uh, do a little delve, like me. All right. Okay. So, yes, in answer to your question, um, there's a there's a great section on inspirational viewing and inspirational reading. So, the first Wuja movies appeared in the 1920s. Um, this book is more focused on works from the 60s onwards so films like temple of the red lotus trilogy um come drink with me righteous blood ruthless blades is particularly inspired by darker wuja films um so things like from the 60s you've got things like the twin swords uh, the one-armed swordsman uh, moving through the 70s you got like master of the flying guillotine death duel broken oath uh, moving into the 80s, we've got things like What Price Honesty, Killer Constable, um, Jade Dagger Ninja. Moving into the 90s, we've got things like uh, Deadful Melody, The Bride with White Hair, Kung Fu Master, New Dragon Gate Inn. And then moving into the 2000s, things like Legend of the Black Scorpion, uh, The Four Trilogy, 2016 Swordmaster is the most um, recent movie. Awesome. I mean, I've read out a handful. There is there is probably about 40 films listed here, so there's a whole chunk moving from all the way through the 60s to the 2000s. Wow, that's great. That's really good. I love a book that includes its influences in the back. You've got to have that, haven't you? It, it's slap dang in the middle, actually. It's really, it took me a little while to find it because it's, um, it's right at the beginning of the game mastering section, which is actually ah. thematically where it should be, um, but it just means finding it isn't, um, wasn't particularly easy. Because there isn't, um, it's not really mentioned in the in the index, you know. But but it's good. It's got a good filmography there. Yeah, awesome. Really, really great. That is. That's really exciting. Um, expect more Wujia talk at some point in the future episode because I'm definitely going to go away and watch Master of the Flying Guillotine and then come back and and maybe talk about that in another episode, you know. And as well, we have to play this, dude. We've just got to we've got to give this game a go, haven't we? I think once I've watched a couple of movies, this is going to be so easy to do a do a one shot, just where people could, the characters can be created pretty quick. I'm just going to get four or five people around the table and just say, "Look, we'll play for three or four hours, and we'll just do some mad 
wuja stuff you know and just really go really go crazy with it i think because it, it's so easy to pick up and um, the game system is so easy to teach and learn that i can imagine as long as everyone comes to the table with the right kind of thought and and kind of attitude and atmosphere i, I think you can just slide right into it it's the, it's the sort of thing where i imagine players would sit down already picturing in their heads what they're going to be playing you know yeah um just listen to some wu-tang clan you get the idea <laughs> Yeah, thirty six chambers. Yeah, just, yeah, just watch thirty six chambers of Shaolin. Can't go wrong. Yeah, or Hidden Blade or something like that. Um, I know for a fact my Wuja swordsman needs to be pledged to a princess. Otherwise, he's no swordsman at all. He's got to have some kind of romance storyline in there. He's got to, he's got to have a, a a lost lover or a, a, a forbidden love. Or there's got to be some some element of romance in there for me to really buy into it. That to me that makes Wuja, and it's it's I'm unapologetically romantic when it comes to my to my uh, Chinese fantasy. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely enough in that book to keep you happy because there's there's tons of stuff about giving your characters the kind of the right backstory and motivations and everything. There's a whole ton of that, so it it doesn't shy off in any of that, you know. Amazing. All right, I'm sold. I'm in. I hope you're not sick of talking about Wuja because the film that I brought to the episode is very much in the same uh, wheelhouse. And what film is that? Ang Lee's 2000 masterpiece, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. A classic. An absolute classic, an absolute classic. Uh, and the highest grossing foreign language film in American film history. Wow, that is an accolade I did not know it had achieved. Yes, this is... I mean, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, it's up there, really up there as one of the, just one of the best films I've ever seen that has ever been made. I, I, I'm firm in this belief. You know, it's an absolute staple of cinema to me Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon um, I think the timing was right the team the production team was um, kind of handpicked and and crafted together it was a, it's a real kind of um, convergence of cast and crew music aesthetics style it just it brings everything together it's everything you want from Wuja to me in this film do you, I don't know if you know or if you think, was this a movie that was maybe designed from the ground up for a more Western audience? Or do you think it was just a breakthrough? It was just, it was designed for a, uh, an original audience, but it just managed to break through to a Western audience? I think, well, when you say ground up, it was based off a novel. Right. So it's based off a series of Wuja books, a pentalogy, um, right. which people can go and look up if they want. It was called the Crane Iron series written by noted Wuja novelist Wang Dulu, uh, otherwise known as Wang Baojiang. He did a lot of work in the... I don't want to get this wrong. Let me just have a look here. He did a lot of work in the 30s and 40s, which is when this Crane Iron series was published, and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is the fourth book out of the five. Right. So it was based off his novel series... Uh, I imagine there's some artistic license going on as well. But to answer your question, I know that Ang Lee, who in the year 2000 was, was a pretty um, pretty prolific and successful director, he had a vision to bring this style to a global audience right. and right. to make sure that it was going to be one of the most kind of graceful, beautiful films that, that people had ever seen. So he really wanted to kind of go all out and pull out all the stops with it and make sure that it was... Uh, that it was one one for the books, you know. 
I remember seeing it when it was new and I, and I was really, uh, you know, blown away by it because I think to uh, a young moviegoer uh, I was at the time who maybe hadn't watched a lot of um, foreign language films, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been, I'd watched a bit of Tartanasia Extreme stuff, you know, obviously I, I was aware of kind of, you know, old Bruce Lee movies or whatever, but those things were just one or two i hadn't really seen this kind of cinema before so to i think for probably for a lot of people it was it was super fresh yeah it was it was like nothing people had ever seen before um we had the kind of one two punch at the end of um the century with the matrix and crouching tiger hidden dragon and i remember distinctly both of those films really changing the landscape of popular culture pretty much forever um you know, if anyone remembers Newgrounds and those websites, there was a lot of spoofs and satires and things going on um, as well. It kind of had a lot of ripple effects outside as well. So we started to see music and other films and TV shows coming out. Both The Matrix and this film, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, share a choreographer. Um, Wu Ping Yuan was the choreographer for both these films. So there's a bit of crossover there as well. I think, I believe it was a Chinese-American production, you know, so really uh, kind of global scale. And yeah, I, I remember watching this film when it came out and I remember I remember a lot of my friends laughing at it because of the style and the martial arts. I think perhaps we were fresh out of the Matrix, which is very different, very, very different style completely. And then you, you watch this martial arts epic and these people are flying around the tops of bamboo trees and skipping across lakes and things. Yeah. And I, I remember at the time people thought it was funny or at least over here in the west you know or at least at least at least here in the black country people thought it was funny and people people didn't really get it i think you've got a, a big western mindset something like this comes along and if you're not willing to kind of open up a little bit it it unintentionally people I remember people laughing at it specifically yeah i i can totally totally kind of vaguely remember that that yeah. response as well from a lot of people that I knew i think maybe the reason it was different for me personally is because I'd kind of almost, in a way, I know they're not the same, but you, you'll be able to see the connection when I say it. I kind of cut my teeth on this old uh, manga entertainment anime stuff, you know, late night um, uh, animated, you know, Fist of the North Star and um, Demon City Shinjuku and all that kind of Rutsuka Daoji. And so that kind of, there's, a, there's an element of style there which kind of crosses over a little bit. It's not the same, but I was like, to see it almost like a live action version of an anime kind of thing is where my my younger brain kind of saw it, you know? Right, right, okay. Yeah, I think China and Japan share a lot of stylistic similarities in terms of yeah. their output, their cultural output. Um, and it's, well, I mean, at least to a Western mind, it's something that is foreign, isn't it? And that's, that's really... Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I... It was, I mean, it was fresh to me. It was fresh to a lot of my friends who weren't particularly into anime or manga and still aren't, I guess. But um, nevertheless, on a rewatch with with what I would now would consider a pretty fairly seasoned cultural mind, I was blown away, absolutely captivated by the fight scenes, by the sequences. Um, even listening to people talk in Mandarin is great to my ear. I love hearing... Um, the Chinese language. You've got four different main actors in this film who all come from different um, areas and all had separate Chinese accents 
for the Mandarin. You know, Michelle Yeoh is right. English Taiwanese, so she had to she learned Mandarin phonetically. Meanwhile, you've got Chow Yun Fat, who is Cantonese, he's from Hong Kong, so he learned Mandarin for the film. So you know, you've got the four main characters are speaking this language each in their separate ways, and apparently, I read that it was so grating on native ears that they did a full Mandarin dub with. ADR different voice actors who could all do the same Mandarin accent so that Chinese wow. audiences wouldn't wouldn't be put off by the different the different accents. But obviously to our ears it all sounds like Mandarin, you know. Yeah. Oh wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. This film, honestly, there's there's a lot of great um backstory and trivia about this film. It's really it's an interesting dive just as itself. Um If you have not seen Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon, I suppose now is a good time to sum up what the film is about. I guess that's something that we should get into first. Yeah, do do a do a very quick plot analysis. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's so it's based off a um, Wuxia novel, which in a way I guess is a kind of fantasy novel. The film follows the story of a Wudan master called Li Mubai, played brilliantly by Chow Yun Fat, and um, his he's a master swordsman, and he's decided to give up his sword, the Green Destiny Blade. He entrusts this legendary sword into the care of uh, Michelle Yeoh's character, whose name I forget in the film, but it's Michelle Yeoh. And then the sword is stolen by a masked thief, and the the kind of the mysteries and the romances kind of unfold from that kind of inciting incident near the start of the film, where we find that each of these characters has their own motivations about acquiring or returning the sword, what their own motivations are outside of um, this kind of conflict that has, that has occurred. It's also one of the greatest love stories that I've ever seen. It's a very, very heartfelt, powerful love story that runs through this film as well. And we kind of we kind of globetrot around a lot of um, the Chinese landscape where we follow these characters and their adventures and there's a lot of showcasing of martial arts which are almost like dances very kind of graceful movements I think in uh, Wuja fiction there is the idea that a warrior can become so skilled that they become light as a feather and it's almost like the, the stronger and more powerful you are the less you weigh and the, the sort of ultimate showcase of your your strength and ability is is your weightlessness is when you're at the kind of top of your game so to depict that in this film we have some great sequences where the characters are it's it's, there's a lot of wire work and the wires have been cg'd out we have some great sequences where these characters are floating over treetops and um there's a great bit where they're fighting on uh bending bamboo canes in a bamboo forest yes yes you know that iconic scene so good so good so good so do you think has this um has this movie inspired any the way that you maybe run uh D or or any other role-playing game do you think do you think it's filtered through to your to your table or do you think it was something you'd have to force on onto your gaming table mm, mm. interesting it's got some good concepts in it definitely i think it's more the concepts that i would apply rather than the style um, for example, a lot of a lot of Wuxia's, particularly a lot of this film, is duels or one person fighting a group, and I just can't see an adventuring party kind of fitting into to this film. Right. But right. there are some great 
um, ideas and concepts that are explored that I would try and fit in. I really like the Green Destiny Sword. It's a kind of centerpiece of the whole film, if you like, and each each of the characters has their own motivations around this legendary sword made during the Kinwu era, engraved with a technique lost during the Han Dynasty. You know, comes alive through skillful manipulation. This kind of thing. It's like its own its own artifact, and to wield it is to uh, you, you almost have to step up to meet the challenge of wielding this sword to make sure that you're worthy of it, you know. So there's, as a magic item, for example, it would be a cool thing to include or some kind of legendary artifact blade. It makes me really um, disappointed that somebody as big as Wizards haven't done either a, a source book or a, a you know, a fifth edition character or Oriental Adventures or whatever they want to call it, you know, something either rehash of the old stuff or a, or a brand new kind of Asian inspired setting because you would think you think that would be something that would be be really popular right well that's what I was going to ask I mean you know we've got the what was it Oriental Adventures in third edition yeah there's um, various yeah. things like that but how much of the hobby of role playing really reaches China and Japan is it is it particularly popular over there I, I don't I guess my my comments and questions are not really about how it's how it's taken in other countries. Um, you know, I've read a lot about the the, the way that the the role playing hobby is in Japan, for instance. And I think there's a whole episode to do there about about total differences in in the industry and what games have become popular over there and what games have developed independently there. But I think my my comment was about the the Western audience being provided right. with a with an Asian setting for their games rather than, than any not not a translation issue or anything like that because I'm sure D D is translated into many, many languages now and it's probably available globally. Um but D D in its fifth edition they brought out a lot of books, but there is a, a long standing tradition of um that kind of Asian setting in D D ever since, you know, A D D first edition brought out the first Oriental Adventures book. And, you know, Karatur was a great setting for the Forgotten Realms. Forgotten Realms is still very popular. It's the default D&D 5th edition setting. So why adventures, etc. haven't been set over there, uh, it kind of surprises me. Um, do you think there's a concern about cultural appropriation? Yeah, yeah. We can't talk about this without bringing up those words, can we? I mean, it's one of those things where the... Like, for an example, do you remember that film that came out about the Great Wall and it starred Matt Damon? Yes, I do remember. It was awful. Yeah, it wasn't great. That's true. Yeah. It wasn't great. But um, they announced that film coming out. Obviously, it was for Chinese audiences. Everyone in the West was was in uproar about the fact that they're whitewashing a, a, a Chinese film. They're putting white actors in the leading roles. And you go over to China and ask what the Chinese think, and they're just happy to see Matt Damon in a film. They're, they're, they're a fan of Matt Damon, you know. So they don't care. It's, it's I all, do like Matt Damon. Yeah, hey, mate, can't go wrong with, no. with a bit of Matt Damon. Yeah. But, you know, how much of this stuff is a fabrication of our culture, not theirs, and how much of it is a is a genuine concern? It maybe is not a discussion for this episode. No, and I agree. And almost the, the greater subject and discussion maybe isn't even for the podcast in general, but I think when you drill it down to what our RPG company is producing, I think that is a relevant question for the podcast. Yes, good, good, uh, good framing there. So the fact to me that D and D aren't willing to um, do something that is inspired by uh, that kind of setting makes me think: Are they just so concerned about potential complaints that they're just not going to bother attempting to do it? 
Yeah, very, yeah, very possibly. Just like, yeah. why bother? Why, why? We're going to upset somebody, so just let's continue with this clearly fake place, which is the Forgotten Realms, where we can't upset anybody. You know, if you want to play a monk, monk is a character class. Crack on, brilliant. But we're not going to provide a, um, a, a an Asian inspired setting because somebody is going to tell me we've got it wrong. <laughs> Damn. I mean, maybe. I'm sure it's, it's a minefield, isn't it? I'm sure they just, uh, for the best, just said, you know, if they want to do it, they'll do it. We haven't got to publish it. I don't know. I mean, China is a beautiful country and there is a lot of influences to be taken from that part of the world for, for whatever kind of RPG you're running. You know, you could you could do a whole game, even if you've never heard of Wuja before, you could spend hours and hours drawing other influences. You know, it doesn't have to be martial combat could be anything i agree and every gm and every player can take influences from any historical period and any geographical period around the world um but i'm dragging this back to the big um the big companies you're looking at you know wizards particularly who are doing D, which is arguably mm. the most iconic and the most well-known gateway um tabletop rpg for a lot of people and it, maybe it could be argued that they should be doing it because then they are providing that opportunity for gamers to broaden their cultural horizons on their tabletop um whereas not doing it is almost like it's notable soul by its absence right so when is it appropriation and when is it representation yes absolutely and i can understand and i know that from the events of, of the last kind of maybe not this year but several year two two or three years um there's been a great concern about um, the way that cultures and individual people have been presented in um, the you know the the intellectual properties that wizards owns, be it magic or D and D particularly. Um, so I think they're very concerned about that. So I can understand why they would think it is a, a kind of delicate situation for them, and, and maybe one that they'd just like to avoid. I mean, I guess maybe that's the smart business move from their standpoint, you know. It's a shame though, isn't it? It's a shame that, that people are going to be so upset that now we, we just can't have an Asian setting because somebody's going to get upset <laughs> about it. I mean, yeah, I, I, maybe that's not the reason, but yeah, yeah, you're right. It is a bit of a shame. Are, th are there any modern Wizards releases that we could argue this case for elsewhere in the world? Um I mean, to defend Wizards, I will say that in their Magic the Gathering game, they are constantly taking real-world cultures and, and kind of adapting them to their okay. various planes, etc. Um, and it, they did, um, going back a while now, but any MTG players will remember Khans of Tarkia, which was a kind of wider Asian setting with kind of separate cultures inside of it. But um, So Wizards are, are not strangers to showing th that that kind of style in their games but i think magic right. the gathering is very right. different but D, D obviously requires the writing of a source book and the development of npcs and all that kind of stuff and and it is something that D, &D have done throughout the years first second third edition mm. um so it surprises me that they haven't revisited it like they've revisited eberron or like they've revisited ravenloft um which is again another subject for another time i just read an article that they are going to go back and do Ravenloft but they're going to get rid of some of that classic gothic horror and, and, and approach it a different way but um, but I digress Oriental Adventures is something that has been around in D&D for a long time so why they haven't dusted it off and produced a fifth ed version makes me concerned that 
they're just they're not doing it because they don't want to upset somebody. That's my worry. I hope that's not the case, and I don't know if it is, but I would hate it if that were true. Yeah, yeah, I'd hate that as well. They'd really be missing out. Um, I mean, it's like half the world. Well, yeah, but I mean, why why should all of your um, D&D fantasy be, you know, pretty much... Well, it's talking, isn't it, you know? Um, we, we deal with that in episode one, but I mean, why... Why is it all this Western fantasy have to be like this? You know, why can't it be samurais and and you know shugenjas and wujen and all that kind of stuff? Like, um, and I I just worry that there would be the 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 cry of cultural appropriation maybe a little too loud for them if they were to do that. Uh, maybe it's not. Maybe they'll come out with something like that. You know, down the line in a year or two's time. But maybe not. And 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 I worry that you can't as a game designer release a game that is inspired by a culture that you are not part of yeah i mean it's a question of have you done it justice or not i think would be would be the kind of uh, default reply what are you what are you approaching this with respect or are you approaching it to kind of pillage it for your own I mean, game how, how, how subjective is that i mean yeah, exactly, accusations yeah. can be leveled if you as a game designer go in with with a great attitude and a very kind of um a good heart and to sit down and write a product that doesn't stop somebody else turning around and saying i'm offended by that true and there's also the element of you then proceeding to make money off the product that has been inspired by a foreign culture, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, another sticky subject, but I hope we're not moving into a into a situation where in order to portray a living or, um, or disappeared culture in a role-playing game, you have to have some sort of badge of authenticity to, mm. to do that, to not kind of suffer at the hands of the the kind of screaming minions, you know, that are, that are going to get upset by it. So, you know, if I want to, for instance, and, and somebody on there, I'll I'll put a link to this game on the disc, disc on the Discord. Um, there was a, a recent game that went through Kickstarter, which was um, kind of Native American inspired, which I think is fantastic. Uh, two of my favorite early Shadowrun source books are the Native American Nations, um, you know, and it's I've watched a lot of documentaries on the Old West and the absolute horrors and travesties that, have, that those people have gone through, but that, that's another separate issue. Um, but this role-playing game that is coming out um, almost wears the badge of authenticity that I previously mentioned with pride that is being created by um, First Nations designers and writers. Um, now, I don't have an issue with that. I applaud that. I think that's great. If you've, if you've got that, yeah. if that's your USP, then fine. But I'm wondering whether we're moving to a, a, a time in the industry that where that is the only way you can do a Native American inspired. And even the term Native American, it, it, you know, I understand how people can find that offensive. I'm just using it because it's common parlance. That doesn't necessarily make it true. You know, I appreciate the plight of the First Nations people in all, you know, it, genocide is basically what we're getting into. But it, that's a discussion for another time. The, mm. the Am I as a designer excluded from creating a game that has those influences if i'm not part of that culture it's a great question it's a great question i'm trying to imagine now a foreign writer setting a game in um modern england 
in the Midlands. Ah, uh, but the, no, no, the, it doesn't. It doesn't go that way, though, does it? Unfortunately, the no, offense, it doesn't. The, no. the offense doesn't flow in that direction. The, the, the river, for for reasons deeper reasons that we all understand, it flows in the other direction. Um, so, is it? Could I not possibly do a kind of African-inspired D and D campaign? And if I did, I would worry about how keen readers would be to learn more about me to see if I have the authority to do that. Yeah, no, you're right. This is something that I see a lot in existing products and stuff. So you're, you're right to have to kind of approach it like that. It's it's definitely something that I've witnessed before in fiction and RPGs and film, I guess, to a certain extent, is that you've got to have the credentials um, to be able to pull it off. I think people are people are very sensitive about each other's cultures. Not necessarily a bad thing, I think we should be, but when it comes to creating, has that put a damper on the kind of inspiration that you might see otherwise? Um, has it has it slowed progress in terms of creativity when people are feeling like they can't bring to bear all of their creative toolkit on a project for fear that it might be taken the wrong way and then they're, yeah. they're kind of consigned to do something more safe in quotation marks that maybe wasn't their first choice and then before you know it you've got a kind of stifled creative community i i think unfortunately there is a there is a huge danger of that and i i understand people's concerns and i appreciate um that people can be offended uh, by things and you know that is that's their that's understandable and that's their right um but i do worry that it will create a certain environment in in the rpg industry particularly i think you know i'm not i'm not educated or experienced enough to take that conversation to a broader table i'm just talking about rpgs because it's something i know about um and i worry that it will affect the kind of new rpgs that are coming out Maybe it'll affect it in a good way. Maybe it'll push um, and allow the opportunity for non-English and non-English speaking game designers to bring their um, games which are inspired by the cultures which they are a part of um, to, to the wider audience. And maybe we'll all benefit because those voices will be given an opportunity to flourish Whereas previously, all we did was had you know middle-aged American white men writing, um, you know, African games and Chinese games and Japanese games and all that kind of stuff. Um, maybe it's maybe this will provide a better playing field. Um, we'll have to see where where that goes, and you know, um, but I, I I worry about the the potential lack of of diversity in the RPGs mainstream RPGs because of the fear of of cultural appropriation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, perhaps it's not mine and your place to really discuss diversity in any in any great detail without without getting on diverse voices. Uh, I don't know about that. I, what I do know is it would be a shame to waste a lot of global culture for the sake of the kind of perspective of a very small westernized group um, with good intentions. Yeah, I think unfortunately, though, your intentions are no longer important. What's more important is, has somebody been offended by what you've done? 
the power lies with them, not with you. For right or wrong, I think that that is that is where it is. You know, I also wonder, you know, to bring us back to the 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 tournament situation. What if I sit down at a at a convention and I've written a, an African inspired AD and um, D Dungeons and Dragons adventure, mm-hmm. and I sit down to present it, and one of my players gets up and walks away, goes to yeah. the to- goes to the tournament organizer and goes, I find this deplorable. Like, how is this person? Why, why can you do this? You know, it, 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 how can you do this? And I'm like, oh, what have I done? Is that wrong? Because in your head, approaching the game, you've been like, oh, I found this cool mythological story. I really want to use it. I really yeah. love these people, you know. And you're you're coming at it very innocently. Rather than a necromancer, I'm going to have a, a, a kind of a well-researched witch doctor, do you know what I mean? And and I'm going to look at the different types of of uh, magical practices that they used to do. And I'm going to try and wind that into the game. And the enemies are going to be like ghostly spirits of ancestors and stuff. And 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 somebody goes, no, stop. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I mean, do you? I, I mean, does that? Is that okay? Is that? I guess. I guess it's got to be okay, because we we don't get to decide what somebody's offended by. I mean, we don't. I think the art of being offended is is itself getting a bit out of hand. I saw John Cleese talking about this recently, but I mean, it's it's different when there is separate cultures involved. I think that's a different kind of. I think there's a different kind of subject than rather being offended about, like we were talking about earlier, if, if people don't like combat, for example, or people don't want something else. I think mm. when you when you bring in uh, representation of different parts of the world, when you bring out when that's a, when that's an element in the game, I think there's a different aspect to it, um, and I would certainly be sensitive in a different way than if I had players who just like to touch the X card a lot. Yeah, but I mean, you know, to create another um, example. I'm at a tournament and I'm running Shadowrun, okay? It's a game that I'm very familiar with. I've played a lot. Some people will know what it is. Um, and I'm I'm running a game of Shadowrun and all of a sudden I present an NPC who is uh, uh, maybe like a, some sort of cyber pirate. And I'm a GM who likes to do voices. Um, you know, I like to I like my NPCs to, to sound different, you know, especially at conventions when you're trying to create that that atmosphere that real dramatic almost theatrical sense and i do an accent is that bad taste now that's an interesting one what if i do a jamaican accent yeah i mean for this one i'd lean more towards no but only because you're portraying individuals rather than saying i'm gonna take this whole culture and use it for my own benefit and make money off it you're saying this is a a person who exists? This is what he or she sounds like in a fan, in a fantasy in world. A made up I mean, world. This is a Jamaican orc. We're talking <laughs> right, about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, well, then you've got the whole uh, the whole problem about orcs being representative of, of uh, that certain race of people, and then then you're off on a whole other tangent, then, aren't you? Yes. Um, but no, I, I don't know, man. I mean, it's like you say, it's not up for us to decide. The river doesn't flow towards us; the river flows away from us. But in terms of portraying NPCs. My argument there would be you're talking about specific individuals and, and thus you'd have to go pretty far to, to draw some kind of warranted offence from people as opposed to saying it's 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 a character. It doesn't matter, you know, it's just it's the character same as any other character I've got here. He's got quirks, vices, motivations, things he hates, things he wants. If you if you've got a fully fleshed out person 
I can't see there being any reason to be offended at whatever accent you may attempt, as long as it was done well. You're quite good at accents, to be fair, so I, I can't imagine that you'd uh, thanks you'd uh, butcher it. Although I'm now expecting a Jamaican nun who's pregnant in my next game. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming together with a plot, <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you. Um, so get your X cards ready. Um, but no, I just you know I am pushing to to the to the extremes in order to kind of yeah. for us to get to the spear point of the conversation. But I do worry, and and this is really in a in a um, you know uh, competition tournament convention style situation. And I guess maybe the best thing to do is just look, just do your own voice for all the NPCs, <laughs> and that's the best way that nobody's going to be offended because then everybody knows you, and can there can be no argument about what you meant. Um, because even if I know that I'm coming from a good place, the other person at the table who doesn't know me doesn't know that. That's and it, I guess it? what I have to do to protect them and to protect my own um, reputation is to just avoid doing any voice that isn't... I can do high and low voices and slow and fast, but I can't do an accent. You know, whether it's an Irish accent or a German accent or a Chinese accent or a, or a Jamaican accent, whatever it is, I just it's best that I just don't. Yeah, probably probably right it's probably best that you don't do a lot of things with strangers that you may do very comfortably with with friends yeah, yeah but then but then isn't isn't that a bit weird that I, all of my npcs have to have to talk in my voice um not if you like me and that's how you do it anyway yeah <laughs> no i don't know no you're right i mean if you're then uh, you're then changing your style to adapt to something that maybe you don't necessarily agree with or not i don't know i don't know yeah, you're yeah. changing how the, the game the game is then changing, isn't it? And whether or not it's being sacrificed. If I if I lose the accents and voices of NPCs, and that takes away from the game, and the game is less because of it, then your view and your vision is suffering as a result of these kind of social contracts that we're bound into. And that's really yeah. where my concern is. I always think as long as there's no problem, as long as the game isn't touched absolutely fine no problem with anything people can do what they want but if i'm running a game and my game starts suffering as a result of some of these things i mean suffering in terms of maybe mine and the player's vision not going to plan or uh what we expect from a role-playing game is not delivered on you know if the game starts suffering as a result of whatever it might be you can't do accents or whatever then that's that's where my my concern starts to arrive into the into the scene because uh you want you want to have the the full experience that you're going for, don't you? Yeah, I would love if if somebody listening has had an experience uh, either side of that experience, whether you've been offended by something at a table or whether you have inadvertently offended somebody at a gaming table. Um, and you know, obviously, no names. Um, but if somebody wants to share their experiences uh, on the Instagram or come on the Discord and have a chat about it, um, I'd be really I think I would learn. I think I would benefit from hearing other people's experiences and perspectives. Yes, definitely. I know I would because I I don't get offended by anything. I I can be witness to the most horrible <laughs> things and it doesn't faze me. So I I would like to have that opposing view. You know, um, if if you have been at a gaming table and something has offended you, get in touch with us. We want to hear about it. Human Energy Field Podcast at Gmail dot com. Join the Discord. Let us know on the Instagram. DM us on the Instagram as well. Um, let us know if something offends you that you don't want to see in games. Let us know if you've seen this happen with someone else. Let us know as well what's going on over there where you are. 
Yeah, because we can only talk from our limited experience. We can't be at every gaming table. We can't be at every convention. We can't be every person. We can only be ourselves. But um, yeah, I think we 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 grow, don't we, by uh, listening to other people's experiences. So I would love it if people would uh, could reach out and and tell us their their stories. Yeah, I would really like that. And we get a decent ones. We'll read them out on uh, an episode as well. We'll read out the emails and stuff, and then we can have a chat about those. I think that would be really cool. 100% let's do that, yeah. Um, I mean, we also have a bunch of audio from interviews and conversations that we've had that we've recorded that's still waiting to be put out, um, just by the way, listeners. So if you've joined in on an open call in the past and you haven't heard yourself yet, I do apologise for that. We've got a lot of audio backlog to get through, but in terms of um, what we've been discussing for the past episode, this is really something that we both want to touch on. We want those different voices. We want those diverse opinions. We want to be challenged on things that we've said um we want to find out new things we want to kind of have that discovery with you the listener so get in touch with us let us know yeah i just want to um before we draw anything to a close as well i want to um just do a a shout out to a couple of podcasts i've been listening to um okay uh i listened to the first episode of uh, dice thrower podcast um which you can uh you can check them out on on instagram um i really enjoyed episode did you listen to episode one yet i have now yes i have um i really enjoyed it um warhammer um games workshop um 40k heavy um kind of light discussion podcast um very easy listen in a good way um one of those one of those podcasts that's hits the note of um, I had it on when I was working and I felt like I was part of a, a little 40k discussion that was going on in the background. Brilliant. Um, yeah, and I, I like that. And um, both the host and the guest on episode one um, were really interesting and, and well-spoken. I really enjoyed listening um, to Dice Thrower. So if you are you know, banging your Warhammer and um, you, you want to get on board with a podcast at, at, at ground level because I know sometimes podcasts can be quite... Um, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of episodes. It'd be quite daunting to jump into something that's been going for a long time, and it can all, it can be hard to get into. And I think sometimes when you join a podcast at episode one, you can experience that 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 beginning with them. You know, and you can feel a bit more of a part of it. So, anyone who wants something new to listen to, um, kind of Warhammer and and other gaming wider related, um, should check out Dice Thrower. I, I know episode one was. Um, was Warhammer related, but I'm not entirely certain where he's taking it with, with what he's going to do RPGs and other gaming related stuff. I think he is, um, but but the first one was was Warhammer centric. I think it's it's I really liked it because it's not just two guys talking about what their favorite models are for however, however long. Will, who we we now know, likes to talk about the person behind everything. So you might get a bit of chat about Blood Angels or whatever, and then he'll ask you why you like them, and then it goes into a, a bit of a personal discussion as well. So he, he rides that line quite well, I think. So it's it's not just heavy Warhammer talk. It's actually kind of... Um, it's actually interesting. Yeah, that is... I think he was he was mentioning on the Discord, wasn't it? That's his approach. He, he wants to um, look at the people in the... You know, be whatever they're doing, whatever part of this industry they're in, or whatever side of the table they're on. Like, he wants to get to grips with the person, and I think that's a that's a that's a good approach. It's a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, I like that. I like that. What else you've been listening to? 
Um, I got back into listening to Full Metal RPG, which Ooh. is admittedly something that I, I used to slavishly, fanatically listen to it all the time. Um, you know, uh, and anyone who, who kind of follows me on Instagram, whatever, will know that. You know, I've kind of known the FMRPG guys for a long time. And um, and I kind of, as you do, you kind of drop out of listening to stuff, not not for any other reason than just it. you, you forget to miss an episode and then you don't listen to another one. And then time um, passes. Yeah, time passes and it, it, it kind of gets out of your schedule. And uh, I was on a walk the other day and I thought, oh, do you know what? Rather than put music on, I'm going to I'm gonna delve into some FMRPG um brendan great guy it was came on our discord um and and had a chat and stuff and which was fantastic um so you know to to anyone else who's an fmrpg listener and whatever please do you know come on over to our discord and share your, your thoughts and opinions and stories and stuff um so i thought you know i'm going to check out the most recent episode and that this was 113 and um it was good it was it it was it felt like putting on a pair of comfortable Dr. Martens that you've worn in years ago and you forgot how comfortable they were and you pull them out of the cupboard and you dust them off and you put them on and you think, man, these are good boots. Why have I not been wearing these boots for ages? You know, that's what it felt like. So I, I slipped the FMRPG boots back on um, and straight away I was, I was, I was back into the, that, that discussion, which was um, – it's really well structured, some great opinions on it, talking about different kind of games, OSR, narrative story games, the kind of real Forge style RPG chat that I'm, I, I kind of like, uh, you know, it's real kind of getting to the bones of that, that the RPG stuff. And I got a lot from that and I thought it was, thought it was really interesting. Didn't necessarily agree with everyone's opinions, but then that, that's, that's what you listen to it for. You know, some people, some I did, some I didn't. Um, but yeah, so anybody who, for a few people maybe who are listening to us who don't listen to FMRPG, then, you know, I can definitely say go over and that episode 113 was a great starting place for anybody who's just into the RPG tabletop hobby and wants to kind of listen to some structured and valued opinions. I think that was that was a really good one. I think this has got this has probably got me back onto the, the, the FMRPG train, I think. I'll, I'll be putting their podcast into my regular listen, I think, along with, uh, you know, Dice Thrower and, and stuff like that, so... I'm just waiting for Ben Bailey to return. Well, I didn't. I, they have a um, like a Warhammer spin-off, which I haven't listened to, and to be honest, I don't think I'm going to because I just don't need any more Warhammer podcasting in my life. Um, mm-hmm. I, it's just not something I'm massively into. I used to be into 40k a lot more um, than than I am now, and I enjoy it for what it is. And you know, I'm, I'm, and I hate to use this term, but I'm more into my old hammer than I am for my kind of new tournament stuff or whatever. So I, I'm, I'm a bit out of the, the kind of modern 40K scene. And so a lot of it, I just don't, I don't click with. Um, but I'm, I might get around to listening to it, but if, you know, sake of transparency, I haven't listened to that. So that, that might be good. Um, I'm sure it probably will be, um, but I, I haven't personally listened to it. So yeah, um, you're referring to a spin-off podcast called Realm of Fire. And that's Brendan and a gentleman called Rob, who I currently am running a campaign. Rob's one of my players, so can can confirm both Brendan and Rob are really, really great guys. If if nothing else, that's probably your your in worth a listen just just for the uh, just for the hosts. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What about that Great Rift podcast? Have you listened to that yet? I haven't. Um, no, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'll be really honest. I didn't know it existed 
until I read the interview in Aya <laughs> Terra. That's how yeah, that's, yeah. that's how much my eyes off the ball with with Warhammer and 40k. I I didn't even know it was a thing. Um, I might listen to it um, because the interview was great and it, it sounded really good. Um, and I think the good thing is they discuss certain books on certain episodes. So I think if the book appeals to me, I'll go and listen to them talking about it. But I would avoid the episodes with the books that I probably didn't fancy. And I think that that's a way for me to kind of dip into that. I might do it that way because I, I'm really not up to date and with kind of black library fiction at all. So, um, yeah, it might be a way for me to learn about some of that without having to read, you know, hundreds of books. That's cool. That's probably a good way to use it. I think I really want to read that book by, um, James Swallow, who wrote flight of the Eisenstein. He did a new book about um, Sororitas. I forget what it's called, but it's it's got a battle sister on the front, and I really want to read that because I thought James Swallow was a really good writer. Um, so I'll, cool. I'll, I'm going to go and search out Great Rift Podcast now and see if they've done an episode on on that book. I think it's called Faith and Fire. I think. Oh, okay. So good call, man. I'm going to go and find that out now. Have I listened to any podcasts recently? I mean, all the podcasts I listen to are either stand-up comedians or cryptocurrency big data stuff so i don't have much right. uh, i don't have much hobby hobby input other than there's this little podcast I'm, I'm sure you've heard of it called human energy field it's pretty good you should check it out yeah it's all right isn't it? yeah it's not bad yeah i'll listen to that yeah yeah, yeah. uh but yeah otherwise um bring it back around to warhammer we have our ongoing forges of nothos project which we are keeping up in the discord um and to round off every episode, we like to just have a little update about uh, our Warhammer. So, so it began, so it will end. What have you been up to recently? Well, my 500-point army, the True Sons of Rus, is assembled. Um, yeah, it's fully assembled. Uh, the 500-point army, my head count is 16 models, uh, which is obviously not very high. Um, but it's it's perfect for you know getting back in, starting a, a, a small army. So... It's been pleasing to see it now uh, fully assembled. I haven't begun painting it yet, um, but I will soon because as things are beginning to open up and travel is becoming possible, um, I really want to take the opportunity to have this force ready to, you know, roll some bones on the table and mm. and move, push my guys around, you know. Got to push those little wolves around the table, definitely. And say, <laughs> Oh, love it, love it. That will be the noise that I use when I push them in it, and it will become <laughs> annoying after time. So I'll just do it when I move my assault troops. I won't do it for my grey hunters. I'm not, I'm not a maniac. Oh, yeah, um, you're not. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll just do woo for my assault guys who've got jump packs, so, which is very non-wolvy, by the way. So there's tried Space Wolf players who are screaming at me for using jump packs. I know, I know. But That's I'm why I do it there, anyway. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> ever, the, uh, ever the Ever pushing boundaries. Too punk, man. That's what I am. I'm too punk. <laughs> too punk. I mean, what is punk, really? That's something that we don't really want to get into right now, let's be honest. As well as building, we also like to write for this project. And um, I've got some fluff that has been posted up in our Discord channel for um, documents and that kind of thing. We also previously mentioned Will of Dice Thrower podcast fame has submitted a bit of fluff as well for the Liber Nothos archives. That was really cool because um, I was chatting with him about it. He just came up with an idea and ran with it. 
and then I'm there kind of cheerleading him. You know, Come on, write some fluff, man. I want to read. I want to read what this is about. And then he comes back to me with a little PDF, and you know, we have a talk about it. And it's being able to explore concepts and ideas that you might otherwise not be able to in ninth edition or in a more stricter setting is really what I love about what we're doing over on the Discord with our Warhammer project. Will's idea was a uh, Adeptus Arbites who has been kind of abandoned and left as her squad has been wiped out by whatever cataclysm has befallen the planet, I think. I'm paraphrasing, but this this lone Arbites finds herself um, kind of wandering the wastes. And, you know, he, and then he, all of a sudden now, just off this idea that he's had, you've got this visual image of this kind of lone wanderer in, like, wrecked old imperial armor with like her power maul or a baton or whatever she's got just wandering the waist beating skulls in to survive and becoming a cannibal like and stuff you know I like that. yeah so that's that's really cool and you know um if i had the spare funds and the spare time i it would make me want to go out and try and ebay an arbitees model and then you know bring that to life so just reading someone else's fluff makes me want to go out and and See the great thing with third ed is if you did, if you kitbashed that model, you could take her as a um, maybe a, a sergeant, like a, a veteran sergeant, or you could take her as a uh, an inquisitor. And yeah. just even though that she's a rogue arbite, like you can just stat her up as an inquisitor and give her whatever kit you want. Those third ed witch hunter and demon hunter codexes are so rewarding to the creative um, player that you could easily just slot that into your army. Like, it's just amazing as a little under the HQ choice. That's yeah. that, what I think is what I'm going to love about this Nothos project moving forward is coming up with these um, these kind of fluff and, and narrative ideas and then we go, do you know what? I'm going to make one of those and get that on the table. This character from this story, you know, fuck it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make that guy and I'm going to yeah. put him in a squad or just put him in whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah, I love that. It's it's so versatile, isn't it? The way the the army builder. Like I could just yeah. build armies forever. We, you know, we have people in the Discord saying, "Oh, I wish I could afford the models." And um, you know, and then we're saying, "Well, you don't need to buy anything. You just want to build the army list. That's that's fun in itself. Is just putting the army yeah. together." Yeah, show us um, your cool army list for some mad cool third ed army list. Yeah, man. Yeah, you never know. You might see it manifested physically one day. Um, so that's really cool. Yeah, and what I also love about these. Um, third ed codices the, the witch hunters and demon hunters ones they have in the back i think i saw you talking about this with someone else they they have in the back a uh like an alternate army list where you can make like an evil version of the the model units presented so it also yeah. talk about adversaries you can make a group of mutants and you can make like a, a apostate um deacon who's turned away from the ecclesiarchy and this kind of thing and it gives you the rules and the stats and they can purchase 15 points from the Cal Space Marines armory and all this kind of thing so they really lay out how you would go about doing it and still give you the choice yeah and they, they give you some great ideas about why witch hunters or demon hunters would fight any army in the 40k universe yes love that and they, they give you some lovely little plot hooks to jump off on and I think that is just so so good it's there's a there's a feel and uh and a freedom that you get from these third edition codexes which you do not get from the, the kind of modern you know ninth edition codexes or even the eighth edition ones that's they're very different creations they're very different books um you know some people will prefer the different types but i think for what we wanted was this really narrative driven experience i think third ed is is so rewarding 
Yeah, it's amazing. This and it's really my era of Warhammer, but I'm I'm glad that we're kind of uh, existing within this edition because it really is it it really kind of enables the player to put together what they want. No, yeah, and no, I just it does, and I think we, you know, we're going to use third ed as the kind of base default, but we're not, we're not afraid to to step into some maybe, you know, some Inquisitor twenty eight or some kind of modified old school Necromunda, or we we're going to do skirmish stuff with it as well. But I think using third ed as that kind of core set of of mechanics and rules is just it is so um, so many options. It, it's just it, the myriad. Yeah, yeah, real myriad of options. So reading those um, adversary lists at the back has given me the idea for the next unit that I'm making for Nothos. Um, so, for example, if you want to, if you guys want to come to Warhammer World when on our Nothos tournament day that we're definitely going to be booking at some point, I'll have two, maybe three armies. So that if you don't, if you come without an army, I'll have something to give you so you can still play. I'll of course be playing my Chaos Sisters. I've decided to put together a group of mutants, like ash waste kind of scav mutants that roam the roam nice. through the the catwalks and the the industrial wastes of Nothos. You know, um, the mega factorums, ah, all of that stuff, all of the good yeah. stuff. Uh, I'm going to be using. I've got some chaos marauder bodies and legs uh, on sprues, which are notoriously hard to get hold of after a quick eBay search. So I'm glad I got those. And a bunch of arms and legs and stuff from, uh, I think they're Cadian Imperial Guard stuff. You know, they've got shoulder pads on, so lots of flamethrowers and chainswords and stuff. And some old Mornheim heads. No, some old Frostgrave heads. My bad. They're, I think they're from Frostgrave. And um, for the boss, I'm going to use some kind of Ogre Kingdom's ogre and make him all bionic. Ooh, and, nice. Yeah, yeah, make him more like a cyborg ogre. So, and that's just from the fluff that we've made already and reading the adversaries list and going, you know what? There's that. I think it's that Adrian Smith artwork in the back of the Witch Hunters yeah, book. You yeah. know, where the guy's got the he's holding the bolt gun to the to the yeah. prisoner's head. I love it's that so artwork good. so much. Yeah. Man. So just looking at it that, is, I was like, it's so sick. I've, yeah. got to, I've, I've, got to, I've got to make a unit based off that piece of artwork. It's so good. It's a great thing about doing 500-point armies and stuff as well is it's so not daunting to go, do you know what, I'm just going to make another one. I'm just going to make a little one. <laughs> yeah. It's two two squads and a couple of HQs, and you know, I'll, I'll root around and, and find the old stuff or kitbash something, and it's like all of a sudden, as you see, you've got a couple of armies. But, yeah, we'll definitely be, um, be at Warhammer World when it is safe to do so. Um yeah, we'll be we'll be organising some stuff, won't we? Without a doubt, for for those listeners who are in the UK and want to come along and hang out, and you know maybe do a, a day or a weekend or something. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I'm really looking forward to that. I've already got people messaging me on the Discord and elsewhere saying you, you guys should do something at Warhammer World. You know, like pe- people are hungry for it. So as soon as yeah. it opens up, we'll be back there definitely. We'll get them feature oh. tables booked. Yeah, we we don't need an excuse to go to Warhammer World anyway, do we? <laughs> yeah. <know>? yeah. So. <laughs> Have some good times there, man. Have Bug- some good times there. Oh yeah, absolutely. You'll see me in Bugman's bar. It's fine. That's <laughs> where I'll be holding court. Uh, just to round off the Warhammer chat, I'm going to be updating you about this because I'm not sure how it's going to go. But I've ordered for storage and uh, transport of my minis. I've got some plastic boxes and I've got some sheets of magnetic. It's such the cool thing to do now, isn't it? To get those storage boxes and just put a sheet of magnets down on it. Where did, when did that become cool? I totally missed that. And now it's, everyone does that now. 
mate, I I'm the wrong person to ask about trends in Warhammer. That's I'm absolutely yeah. the wrong person to ask about that. I don't know. I've just I saw it and I thought that actually makes sense. So um, that's what I'm going to try. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing worse than pushing some spindly model in between <laughs> jagged bits of form and just losing an arm or do you know what I mean? Like the amount of times I've pulled pure-strain gene stealers out of a, a GW carry case and they're just bodies with no arms. It's it's crazy. So yeah, I, I can totally see the appeal. I just, A, don't know how it took that long for us as a community to figure it out. And B, it's just spread like wildfire. It's like, you know, it's what the cool kids do to carry their troops now. So Right, right. Well, count me in in that group then, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. I don't know why it took so long for people to figure out that this is probably the good way to do it, but I'm going to give it a shot. I've got to cut around 30 bases and then stick stick this uh, self-adhesive magnetic paper onto the bottom of 30-odd bases of these sisters and then uh, hope that each of them sticks to the other side of the magnet that I'm going to put in the box. So there's a bit of fiddling to be done, but if that doesn't work, I'll, I'll get the little the little magnets, the little silver ones. So there's options. I think, to be honest, though, without getting too much into it, you know, it's a subject for another time, but as models from GW have become more kind of mad and dynamic and they just don't fit in the mm. traditional carrying options, you know, like I think the, the old school GW options, the, the form cases uh, were really just designed for uh, very simple and um, solid sculpts that you used to get through second edition and maybe even third edition and stuff. And because of the the increase in technology and, and skill and stuff and sculpting, uh, models are just crazy now. And it just it's almost impossible to fit them into a box. That's true. Even just kind of standard models. So it kind of makes sense that we had to adapt, you know. Yeah, but like you say, subject for another time. Yeah. But yeah, well, adapt we shall. And I'm looking forward to seeing what other kind of fluff and armies come out of this this ongoing project that we've got going on there's some great stuff in the discord honestly some people are coming up with some really great models um all kinds of realms of chaos beasts and demons and stuff like that so it's really exciting to see this come together and uh the moment we can get minis down on a table and and roll some dice it'll really come to life i think yeah and hopefully fingers crossed that won't be too long now as we we seem to be seeing a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel don't we so we do. You're right. Light at the end of the tunnel, guys. You've made it this far. Thank you so much for listening to us talk about minefields of cultural appropriation and Wuja. Really appreciate it. Just to reiterate what we've said, if you have any any input, please head over to the Discord, head over to the Instagram, head over to the Gmail. Just send us your thoughts. Send us what you what you think about the episode. If you are one of the lucky people who has listened now to all 10 episodes, you've earned a right to have a comment on the show. So send us something and we'll, we'll bring it up. If you've listened to all 10 at this point, then uh, get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. What do you think? Yeah, without a doubt. I think we, we always said at the beginning when we started this that we really wanted to make this a, a two-way street as much as we could. So we really encourage people to, to share your thoughts because we want... We, we're not going to ignore them. It's given us fuel for the episode. So, you know, if it's something that you want to just chat about text-based on the Discord, great. If it's a subject you're really passionate about and you think you've got a lot to say, then, you know, maybe maybe be a guest. Come on, you know, come and come and we'll, we'll record, talk about it. If it's if it's a subject you, you're really passionate about or you're an expert in or whatever it happens to be, great, you know, get in touch with us and, and maybe we can have that conversation, record it, and everybody can hear it. That would be sweet. 
Yes, and we have some great guests lined up for future episodes as well. I've already got a lot of people in the waiting list. Waiting. We haven't had we haven't had a guest on for a while, have we? So we need to we need to get on that. You're right. It's about time. I'm gonna I'll go dive into my my phone book and uh, summon up one of the one of the guests waiting to come on. I think, and um, we'll get some get some new voices on the show. I think that's what we need for the next episode. Maybe. Hundred percent. Thanks, man. Always a pleasure. Of course. Thanks for listening, guys. Really appreciate it. As always, stay safe, stay hydrated, and to leave you with a final thought, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a old Chinese proverb, which means to hide your strength from others. So I encourage you all to follow that advice and keep yourselves on track and don't care about what people think of you. Just be the Crouching Tiger, be the Hidden Dragon in the bamboo forest. Good night. Night.